Welcome to the podcast EMS History, Myth, and Media. In this episode, I continue to discuss Baron Dominique Jean Luray and his major innovations he brought to EMS and military medicine specifically. This episode focuses on the military field hospital and battle emergency care. Please stay tuned. An unfortunate fact about emergency medical care is that advances happen in fits and starts, and the breakthroughs are often the result of warfare. Major advancements in trauma care coincide in almost every case with the war in which they were first used in the care of wounded military. Although I'll go back over 2,000 years in this episode, the significant changes have occurred in the past 200 or so, and Baron Dominique Jean Luray, who was talked about in the last episode, represented a big turning point around 1800. Unfortunately, his best ideas didn't alter care very widely for over a century. In battle, there will of course be wounded. The author Homer, before the Common Era, described, perhaps in fiction, how wounded were taken by chariots, were carried or walked to tents, which were called black ships in the rear for any kind of treatment. Often, houses, temples, or even stables were called into service to house the wounded. Later, permanent structures were built, obviously away from the battles, and the Romans used some private hospitals or homes of the wealthy if uh, the battles were near Rome. Uh, They would, if time permitted, when fighting away from Rome, construct buildings of stone, basically a long corridor with rooms on each side into which to place injured soldiers. This stopped after the first or second century of the Common Era as Roman influence declined. In the medieval period and Crusades, hospitals were built to house the lame, lepers, and others, not really to treat them, but just to place them. Many of these were built by religious orders. Queen Isabella of Spain in the 12th century, in the siege of Alora, sent out six large tents and equipment along with physicians, surgeons, and helpers along with medications. These were called Queen's Hospital. About 400 years later, under Charles V, similar setups were used at the Siege of Metz. Sieges could last months, and so these were not very mobile temporary structures, but in fact were constructed specifically for treating wounded and ill soldiers. In the 1700s, Hospitals in Europe were essentially large buildings with rooms hundreds of feet long, scores of people on straw mats with rodents and filth, and reports were that the inspectors at those hospitals had to hold vinegar-soaked rags over their faces to go through them. This was the typical civilian type of hospital at the time, and unfortunately the medical care provided to the military was really not much different. In the U.S., uh, the first hospital was recorded as a series of five houses used to hold six soldiers who previously were housed just in private homes. During the Revolutionary War, although George Washington spoke compassionately of sick and injured soldiers, there was frankly no funds to support medical care of any magnitude. Dr. James Tilton of Delaware felt that the crowded quarters of soldiers were unhealthy, and he supervised construction of separate log huts loosely laid together to enhance ventilation on dirt floors of a size to house about 8 to 12 men each. 
This, of course, was in the late 1700s, which brings us up to the time of Dominique Jean Leray, about whom I spoke in the last episode. Uh, the French Revolution from 1789 to 1799 followed, and in it, and specifically in the Napoleonic Wars which followed, the advances of Dominique Jean Leray happened with the introduction of his walking hospitals, or hôpital ambulant, which came to be known as ambulances, near the fighting revolutionized military care at the battlefield. It is important to note that the word ambulant or ambulance comes from the same root word from which we have the English word ambulate, meaning to walk. Baron Leray used field hospitals for immediate treatment and more permanent military hospitals for more extended care. The concept would not be widely used for about another hundred years. In America, the War of 1812 happened shortly thereafter, and of course none of this had been well publicized or had made the way over to America from Europe for the War of 1812. About 40 years later, in the 1850s, the Crimean War occurred on a peninsula into the Black Sea down from Russia between the Russians and the Turks who were supported by the British. Although this war was quite brutal and was stupidly fought by both sides, this is, after all, the war from which Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote his famous The Charge of the Light Brigade, documenting a foolish charge into certain death uh, with the enemy up on high ground around a valley. Nevertheless, a huge breakthrough in military medicine occurred at the time of this conflict. Publicity was very quick to get back to Britain about the deplorable conditions which were occurring there. A nurse at that time, by the name of Mary Seacole, petitioned the war office to let her go to Baklava, where the charge of the light brigade occurred, and was refused. She went on to finance her own trip herself and established in that area a rather large convalescence center which came to be known as the British Hotel. Another nurse in another area of Crimea called Uskadar saw the deplorable conditions and vowed that she was going to change things. She forced the introduction of sanitary conditions, of treating the soldiers humanely, and other breakthroughs in battlefield medicine. That nurse, of course, was Florence Nightingale. About ten years later, the next major conflict in the world was the American Civil War. Again, none of the advances which Florence Nightingale brought to medicine had transferred across the ocean to America by that time. Up until that time, the typical military hospital in America was the regimental or the brigade hospital, which again housed large numbers of patients and was somewhat far from the battlefield. With the rapid movement of troops in the Civil War, something else was needed. One of the things that occurred was that the Civil War was the first war in which railroads were common, and patients were placed in litters in basically boxcars and sent away from the battlefield back to these regimental hospitals. Sometimes slings uh, were suspended from the ceilings of the boxcars on rubber straps to ease the jostling of the patient uh, during transport. 
large centralized hospitals called pavilion hospitals because they tended to be very long structures were designed. The first one, interestingly, uh, was built in West Virginia. They were described as buildings up to 130 feet long, segmented into sections with about 20 beds per section. However, the Partitions between these sections did not extend all the way to the ceiling, so the air commonly flowed from section to section. The care provided at these pavilion hospitals was crude, to say the least. Antiseptic technique was unknown or ignored, and descriptions of the operating theaters were somewhat barbaric. Uh, one soldier described a scene of patients lying about in the sides of the room groaning and shrieking as on tables in the middle surgeons amputated limbs of patients amid blood pus and a pile of limbs strewn about their feet the instruments were not cleaned between procedures the bandages and sponges likewise sometimes were merely rinsed and squeezed out and the sheets were also dirty Wounds and amputation stumps were sewn up with silk thread, which was also not sterile, and neither were the needles into which the silk was threaded. Uh, the surgeons would frequently lick the thread to moisten it to thread the needles or rub the ends of the silk between their bloody fingers in order to moisten it to help thread the needles with it. The surgeons, who came from private practice before they were incorporated as uh, medical staff for the military, frequently just brought their instruments with them, oftentimes carrying them from battlefield to battlefield in their knapsacks. The system was that the better surgeons or the more experienced surgeons were apportioned to the military hospitals to which wounded were taken, and inexperienced or untrained surgeons were used near the battlefield uh, to assess the patient and maybe provide some first aid before they were sent back to these pavilion hospitals. This system was set up by Jonathan Letterman, who was the medical director of the Army of the Potomac, and the system was arranged more to conserve resources than to serve the wounded. In the early part of the Civil War, a red flag was hung uh, near the field hospitals, and this was changed in the later part of the conflict to a yellow flag with a large green H sewn on it. Also used during the Civil War was hospital ships, and these were used later on in the 20th century and further refined. This brings us up to the 20th century, during which significant advancements were made in medicine in general, and a lot of the care of trauma was significantly advanced by the wars which occurred in the 20th century. In World War I and World War II, field hospitals were more frequently seen, and in World War I, ships were staffed with corpsmen, with actual trained medical people who attended to wounded on board ship. This concept became the medic in World War II uh, in the people who were engaged in land battles. Various titles were added to the classification of military occupational specialties, or the MOS 657, and these included first aid man, hospital orderly, litter bearer, and ambulance driver. Uh, the Red Cross symbols started to become used on medics' helmets uh, to identify them. They got the wounded, often braving 
enemy fire by crawling out to them. They stopped the bleeding, they used tourniquets if needed, and they administered morphine and dragged the soldiers to safety. Early on, soldiers looked down upon medics and made fun of them. However, whenever one would get injured, they would yell out medic uh, to get them to come to them. And it was not uncommon after respect was given the medics uh, that they called them doc uh, in casual conversation. At the time of the Second World War, the first antibiotics, penicillin and sulfa, were developed and were initially only available in the military because of their limited production. After the medics dragged the soldiers to safety, litter bearers would carry them to motorized ambulances who would then get them to field hospitals where procedures would be performed. This rapid evacuation, early treatment, and the use of penicillin and sulfa uh, to fight infection greatly increased the survival of soldiers who fell on the battlefield. In some situations, soldiers were even evacuated to an airfield where they would be flown to a more advanced hospital for surgery, oftentimes arriving there around an hour after they were first injured. Statistics showed that 85% of the soldiers who were tended to in that first hour and received advanced treatment survived. This may be one of the origins of the golden hour in trauma, which we still uh, refer to today. In terms of numbers, around 830,000 medic cards were issued during World War II. In the years immediately following World War II, remarkable advances in emergency medical care for the wounded uh, developed. For one, in the Korean War, Baron Leray's Hôpital Ambulant, uh, the walking hospitals, really reached a peak when mobile army surgical hospitals or MASH units were set up very close to the battlefields and surgical care was rendered oftentimes starting in under an hour after the uh, person was injured uh, because they were evacuated frequently by helicopter. Again, Baron Leray had talked about ambulance volante or flying hospitals, and now in the 1950s, the ambulances really did fly. Another creative invention in the Korean War and the Vietnam War immediately after were the use of blood products frequently given uh, while the patient was being transported away from the battlefield. In the years since Vietnam, several advances in the treatment of wounded and injured in the battlefield have developed, and one of these is the resurgence of the use of tourniquets in extremity injuries to decrease the amount of blood loss and prevent shock from blood loss in those injuries. In the desert wars in the 90s and since 9-11, one of the significant improvements in trauma care is in the prevention of deaths due to explosive injuries. And this is the result not of any specific medical care, but because of the increased efficiency of the body armor, which has been used, and also in the use of armored vehicles. Now, when a soldier is the victim of an explosive injury, their torso, uh, which used to be the main reason that they would die, was from torso injuries, is protected, and extremity injuries are increasingly the major focus of care, thus the use of tourniquets to stop bleeding from extremity injuries. 
one of the results of this particular emphasis on extremity injury is the increased number of amputees uh, who have survived the conflicts of the last two decades. So, in concluding this episode, you recall in the Napoleonic Wars, Baron Leray developed mobile field hospitals, the Hôpital Ambulant, which he invented and were not really used again in that fashion for about a hundred years. And though in the years since World War II, these have evolved into mass units. Dominique Jean Leray was a man well ahead of his time. This is the bare bones history of military hospitals and the evolution of treatment of the wounded in battle. In the next somewhat briefer episode, I'll discuss another of Baron Leray's innovations, triage. Thanks for listening. Stay well and consider subscribing to EMS History, Myth, and Media to be assured of getting future episodes.